A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hiki mai kake mai, and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance aho. Later on, we'll hear how New Zealand rivers are flowing further out to sea than expected. But first, cancer is the leading cause of death in New Zealand. Every year, more than 23,000 new cases are diagnosed, and nearly 10,000 people die from it. One person who knows more than most about cancer is Brian Cox. Brian is director of the Hugh Adam Cancer Epidemiology Unit at the University of Otago. He studies the causes of cancer. Epidemiology is defined as the study of the causes of disease and the effects of health services upon them. So in terms of cancer epidemiology, my interest is in the causes of cancer and the effect of health services on the incidence, mortality and survival of people with cancer. So how do you go about doing that? Well, there are several different particular study designs that are used. Them revolve around the use of uh, a cancer registry. Uh, New Zealand's lucky we have a, a very good cancer registry in the sense that we have a statutory notification of cancers. So that means every cancer has to be recorded? Yes. And there are several countries around the world that have that system but not that many. How many kinds of cancer are we talking about? Quite a few, aren't we? Well, cancer is actually a broad range of diseases, probably at least 25 major diseases. And even within some of the largest numbers of cases, in terms of breast cancer, for example, within that there are several subcategories that are relatively distinct. So cancer is a term that really describes the way the disease invades the body and and spreads. They have particular features in common, but apart from the very simple commonality, they have been very, very varied in both causation, the things that uh, sorts of exposures that cause the disease, and also how our body responds to them and how well we survive from them. What are our worst cancers? Worst in terms of causing death or worst in terms of the numbers of cases that occur? Both of those. In terms of the numbers of cases, the commonest cancer registered is prostate cancer in men. It's about 3,900 cases a year. Quite a bit of that is to do with uh, early detection through the PSA test, uh, and not all of those cancers actually are life-threatening. So a lot of people, for example, uh, can develop prostate cancer and have it for many years and actually die of something else. So prostate's the commonest cancer. What other yes. kinds of cancers are common? Breast cancer is about 2,500. Then we have melanoma, about 2,200. Bowel cancer is just over 3,000 cases a year. 
Uh, then we get down to some cancers like non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is about 700 cases a year. And that's a particular form of cancer that's actually increased very rapidly in the last 30 or 40 years. But these different cancers, they're not all equally fatal, are they? No, not at all. Depends a bit on how soon you detect them. Uh, melanoma depends on how thick they are when they're diagnosed. Uh, we have a large number of thin melanomas, uh, so there's only something of the order of, of only about 650 people die of melanoma a year, even though there are 2,200 cases a year. However, some of the people with thin melanomas still unfortunately succumb from the disease, and it's not clear why. So our melanoma rates are pretty high. Yes, in terms of countrywide rates, we have uh, highest rates in the world. In Australia, they have high rates in Queensland and, and New South Wales. From a citizen's point of view, an obvious thing to do is just regular checks, because it's, it's, it is one of those cancers that you can actually see. There are some advantages in being able to see the tumour early, I agree. And in Australia, they do quite a lot of that in terms of skin check system that they have. It's not that clear how much of an impact that has had, and there needs to be a bit of work in determining exactly how much of a reduction in mortality is achieved by just detecting things early. Well, let's come back a bit more to, w- to what you do as an epidemiologist, and let's, let's use a cancer as an example. So let's go with bowel cancer, because I know you've had some recent work on that. So if you're going to do a study looking at bowel cancer, how do you go about doing that? The quickest way is to do what's called a case control study. So we can get a, a, a complete selection of the people developing the disease in a, a period of time in New Zealand. We then contact those patients, usually by post, uh, and ask whether they would be willing to participate. We give them the information about what we're doing. Uh, And uh, New Zealand, uh, something like 85% of the people we approach in that way are happy to be involved. So that's the case part of the case control study. We then, in terms of the control subjects, we need a group of people, a representative group of people from which the cases came. So in that situation, New Zealand, because we're doing a New Zealand-wide study, we uh, approach the Electoral Commission and get a a computerised copy of the electoral roll. So from that, we then randomly select several hundred, sometimes thousand people from the electoral roll and approach them by post. And so we get uh, response rates of somewhere between 65 and 70% of the people we approach that way. And we need those relatively high response rates in both the cases and controls to give the uh, results scientific validity. And then once we've done that, we've got this different information. There's a form of analysis uh, that's been around for 50-odd years. Um, it's the basis of a large amount of, of, of research findings that we use all the time. So it's tried and true. Yeah, it's tried and true stuff. It then gives us an estimate of the relative risk of the disease in people with a certain exposure. And we can also look at the amount of exposure they've had, whether that relative risk, if you like, of their disease increases or decreases with the level of exposure that they've uh, had. Uh, It's usually what the exposure they've had that's relevant because cancer almost always is associated with exposure you've had 10 or more years ago. 
not what you had yesterday. So often the cancer's been in the person's body for some time before it's been detected, typically seven, ten years at least, and for some cancers, much longer. For example, mesothelioma, which is a somewhat relatively rare form of uh, cancer of the uh, lining of the lung. Uh, Related to asbestos. After the, the asbestos exposure, on average it's 40 years. That's a particularly long time, what we call lag time, between exposure and the disease. Uh, but it's typically of at least 7 to 10 years uh, after exposure that one could, could think that their cancer might be related to it. So coming back to your recent uh, colorectal bowel cancer study, um, so the cause of that is very strongly related to diet. So in terms of that study, what were, what were the kinds of questions you were asking people? Well, we asked people in the uh, two years or a year before their diagnosis or before we approached them what they ate in terms of uh, how many servings of bread they would have, how many servings of meat, certain types of meat they would have, how often they uh, drank milk, for example, various aspects of fruit consumption, merely about what's called servings per week. And there's quite a range. So in terms of the study of bowel cancer and diet, you, you were starting from a point where we already know quite a lot about the impact of diet on bowel cancer. So can mm. you quickly explain to me what the current state of knowledge was before we get to your paper? Well, there was a lot of information that suggested that eating fresh fruit and vegetables would reduce your risk and, and that some aspects of uh, red meat consumption may increase your risk. And there was, about 15 years ago, a lot of interest in whether processed meat actually increased One's risk of bowel cancer. So sausages, bacon, stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, uh, salami. And, uh, so because there are a multitude of so-called risk factors for the disease, now risk factors doesn't mean to say it causes the disease, uh, in different populations you want to know the relative contribution of these risk factors or these associations to the actual cause of the disease in the population. So we want to know why New Zealand had the highest rates of bowel cancer in the world. So was it because we just happened to eat a lot more processed meat than the rest of the world? Or was it because this and that were combining to actually produce a particular problem here? When you've got multiple risk factors for disease, you do have to have to get down to what's happening in your population. You can't just take in information from overseas and expect it to apply uh, directly to the population, which is what, unfortunately, we've lazily done. Because we have lots of very unique population attributes here. We have the Māori population, we have a high Pacific population, we have a growing Asian population. Yes, the population is always mixing and changing. And not only that, so the exposures and uh, the way we operate in society has changed, and our diet has changed, as well as the way the food's produced has changed. And cancer incidence changes in populations. It changes somewhat slowly. You don't see a rapid change this year to next year. But over two decades, you can see things that have changed. And it's important we know why they've changed. In bowel cancer, many years ago, our group was the first in the world to show that your risk of bowel cancer depended on quite a bit on your year of birth. Explain that to me. Well, it usually indicates there's something early on in life, usually before the age of about 25, that has uh, somehow fixed to some extent uh, 
your lifetime risk of the disease. And it, these things do change by generation. The classic example when this became obvious was when people looked at smoking and lung cancer. So it happens that smoking is a sort of the habit that people take up before they're 25 and they tend to keep it. And so different generations took it up to different amounts. And so you saw lung cancer uh, incidence rates vary quite a lot by a person's year of birth. Smoking is a social habit you take up. So with bowel cancer, yes, that's what's right. happening? With bowel cancer, what we showed is that um, there was a gradual increase in risk of bowel cancer from people born in the 1920s through to about 1940. But from 1940 to 1956, people born successively through those years, rates of bowel cancer in New Zealand dropped dramatically. They dropped by half. So if people born who, who were born around 1956 had half their lifetime risk of bowel cancer of people born 1940. And that's a huge change in people born only 15 years apart. I was the first to sort of show that and publish, publish that way back in 1984. And it's always intrigued me as to why that could happen. So a lot of our interest in the causes of bowel cancer using those really triggered by if we could just unravel that, find out why that happened and maintain it or even improve it, it would be valuable not only in New Zealand but worldwide. So... Uh, we did a study uh, some years ago now, and we looked particularly at uh, risk factors for disease in childhood and young adulthood. And at the time, I was particularly interested in whether our free school milk scheme that came in in 1937 and finished about 1967, whether that might have had some influence that first uh, study suggested that drinking milk in schools may actually reduce your risk of bowel cancer. So because it was only one study, we wanted to do a second study, and this time we wanted to actually look at adult diet as well. In the second study, we didn't find an association with drinking milk in schools, but we found these increased risks uh, in adulthood. It's the changes in the rate of disease and the differences between populations that you need to explore, because that's where the answers are in terms of the cause of disease. Just coming back to this recent paper, so it's titled Do Low-Fat Foods Alter the Risk of Colorectal Cancer from Processed Meat? Well, it was a little bit unexpected, but we found that processed meat, for example, was quite a, a strong risk factor. For are all meats equal or equally um, bad? No. We looked at chicken and fish, and they didn't have any relationship with disease. Beef, a little bit of an association. Lamb, pork, processed meat in particular, they were the ones that seemed to have the association with, with disease. Now, an association with disease doesn't say it's causing it because the enigma in this study and others is that if you look at vegetarians or vegans, not just people who've just become vegan or vegetarian, but people who've been vegetarians or vegans for 20 or more years, they didn't have any reduced risk of bowel cancer. Damn. <laughs> it's just the long-term vegetarian. <laughs> well, 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 the important thing is when you get an association with disease, the proof is, does the disease go away when you remove the exposure? Unless you can show that, you can't be actually be convinced that you're on a winner. The real proof is, 
when you remove the risk factor or the association, does the disease decline? And if it doesn't, you're probably on the wrong horse. Where does milk come in now, in your thinking? Well, in adult, milk is related to a reduced risk of bowel cancer. That seems to be pretty consistent here and elsewhere, etc. So milk and other dairy products? Yeah, and other dairy products as well. But not cheese? Not particularly, no. And there's an issue about the amount of fat content in, in, in cheese, which makes it slightly different. In terms of dairy products... Uh, some have a high fat content and some don't. So and you much. think the low fat's key? I think the fat consumption is related to the lack of reduction in risk with cheese. But what we did find is people who chose low fat foods regularly or always, then processed meat did not increase their risk at all. But for people who didn't, particularly choose low-fat foods, that's where the risk was associated with increased consumption of processed meat. Nobody's shown that before, and I think it's part of trying to unlock what's going on with how all these different factors are associated with disease, and it may be a clue even in terms of why vegetarians don't seem to have uh, protection or reduced risk of bowel cancer. Bowel cancer is a relatively complex disease and just thinking that removing or changing a few, uh, few exposures to associated disease will somehow alter it in a major way is very naive. Was fruit and vegetables protective? Is it a good thing to eat lots of them in terms of bowel cancer? Well, vegetable consumption didn't make any difference to risk. Fruit had some protective effect, but it's really only people who eat very little fruit who have the increased risk. You don't have to, you have to eat much fruit for it to be protective, and eating lots of fruit doesn't seem to make it any more protective. There was an association of bowel cancer with bread consumption. Yes. I can't explain that. That's not unique to New Zealand. These associations, as I said, are associations with disease, not necessarily causal. Often with these things you get things that are associated with disease, and then the next study you try, you try to narrow that down a bit more or find what else is teasing that out and you start getting closer and closer to what actually is actually triggering the disease. But and you've so still you, got work to do. <laughs> yeah, so it's not, it's not as if you do one study and that's all the answers, thank you very much, oh great, we can all go to sleep again. That's not how it works. Going back to your question about the development of bowel cancer, the group that had low risk who were born around 1956 since then, people born since then have slowly had increased risk again. So people born from about 1971 onwards are back to having the high rates of bowel cancer that people who were born before the 1940s had. Well, they phased out school milk in 1967. Well, so say our second study didn't really show that the school milk was key. I was a bit disappointed with that, but yeah. that's the way it goes. You know, yeah. We don't know. And I think we're in a position right now in New Zealand with these major fluctuations occurring between generations to actually get to the bottom of what's going on. The issue with bowel cancer primarily is that most bowel cancers appear to grow out of polyps or other abnormalities that occur in the gut when you're younger. There are benign polyps and there's another form of adenomatous polyp, which is the important one. From youth to the age of about 50, 
these develop in about 30% of the people. Uh, from about the age of 50 onwards, they don't seem to, you don't seem to get any many more. Cancers tend, in large part, appear to develop from these adenomatous polyps that develop. So it's the old story in cancer where you've got a common, what we call pre-cancerous or a common condition, which occasionally goes a little awry and cancer develops from it. So when you've got that situation, you've got two things going on. One of the things that cause the condition to start in the first place, the development of these adenomatous polyps, and secondly, a second cause which triggers some of them to go on to develop cancer. And those two causes can be quite different. The combination of them, an adverse combination of both of them, is particularly nasty, and you get a very big increase in incidence. So it's not as simple this causes that. Thanks, Brian. Brian Cox is director of the Hugh Adam Cancer Epidemiology Unit at the University of Otago. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori, ki te reo erirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance and this is Our Changing World on RNZ. Now, New Zealand has a very long coastline and, as a consequence, a lot of shallow coastal waters, about which we know not a lot. But for the past five years, a couple of autonomous underwater vehicles have been hard at work, clocking in thousands of kilometres of sea time, measuring and recording. The AUVs are ocean gliders. They're called Manaya and Betty. The pair are managed by Niwa coastal oceanographer Joe O'Callaghan, and I catch up with Joe and PhD student Kushbu Jakor to hear about a surprising recent finding about where river water ends up in the sea. We use ocean gliders to remotely sample the ocean. Uh, They measure all kinds of water properties, temperature, salinity, oxygen, and then light and turbidity. And these robots autonomously sample the ocean when boats can't, so sometimes in bad weather. And they also sample at much higher resolution than we would ever sample if we went out on a vessel. So they're continuously moving up and down. How big are these things? Yeah, so these these look a little bit like uh, a torpedo, so they're one and a half metres long. They're bright yellow, uh, but they have wings on them, so they look a little bit like an aeroplane. But because they don't have a propeller, they can go and sample the ocean for many weeks to months at a time. So you decide where you want these things to be, and you head out on a boat and you launch them, and then, what, they have a pre-programmed plan of where they're going to go? So, yes, so what we do is we put them uh, in the ocean on a small vessel. We spend a bit of time testing them, making sure they're all working properly, and then we send them on their way, and they head towards a waypoint, essentially. So you might head offshore or inshore, depending on the, the project. And we can control these robots from our computers here at Niwa at Greta Point. And so I can check in, sometimes at home, sometimes at 2 o'clock in the morning, and change the programme of where the gliders are sampling. So we, we send new waypoints, we find out where they are, and they make regular calls into our computers here. So tell me about this recent voyage your gliders have been on. So over four years, we spent a, a large chunk of time sampling Greater Cook Strait. We've had lots and lots of missions, and through those missions we've learnt about some new features in the coastal waters offshore from Tasman and Golden Bay. 
we've been repeating the same line, so we've been able to get an idea of what happens in this part of the ocean, and what we're seeing is some low salinity features many, many kilometres from land. So low salinity means fresh water. So I'm thinking here in Wellington, I can look out the window into the harbour, and after rain, there's a pulse of fresh water that comes down the Hutt River and makes its way across the harbour and out into Cook Strait. So that's the kind of thing you're following? Yeah, absolutely, yes. Often, you know, the, the, we see them here in Wellington, and they're often quite brown and have got a lot of sediment in them. And so that's quite distinctive. The, the sorts of features we're seeing in Cook Strait is the same thing, but they often don't have such a brown turbidity signal with them. They've got a distinctive salinity signal. So yeah, it's a, it's a measure of the river water in the ocean. So what are the rivers that are feeding into Tasman Bay, Golden Bay? So we have four main rivers. The two biggest one would be Motueka and Aorere. So Aorere uh, discharges into Golden Bay and then Motueka into Tasman Bay. Can you recognise the water from individual rivers? Or can you just tell it's river water? We cannot recognise from which river uh, specifically we are detecting it further out, but a lot of the times it's it's a combination of the several river plumes, though. So it's being dragged by the tides out of the bays. So it's a combined plume that we are detecting further offshore. So before the gliders went out and did this four years of research, what did we know about the river water that fed into the bay? There have been a few studies that were quite limited to the coastal area, so within the bays itself. What we did this time was send the glider out of the bays and we detected those features outside of the bays. So these waters are getting much further. What were you expecting? Were you expecting the fresh water to gradually just diffuse into the seawater so that it became just all mixed up? When a river discharges into a coastal bay... The tide moves it about back and forth, sloshes it about, and then there's also wind mixing at the surface. And so the rules that we think about for ocean processes is that it would be dispersed and it would mix locally and also it just wouldn't have a very substantial signal outside of the bays. And so you know, the, all of those, those mechanisms be, would be sufficient to mix those rivers locally. But we can see that what we call scientific jargon, I guess, is far field. So we've got some quite significant far field signals of these rivers in Tasman and Golden Bays. So is this almost like some discrete blobs of fresh water that are just getting sloshed around out there? It's not complete from where the river is to where we sample them with the gliders. It's changing and swirling, uh, you know, what we call eddies. And so they're quite small eddies uh, and they detach from the main plume as it heads offshore, uh, but, but they're still distinctive in this, this low salinity. So when you say they're small, over what sort of distance does the glider detect this lower salinity? The scale of 4 to 10 kilometres is what we think these features are. It's difficult because we've got incomplete data again. You know, there's never enough data for us scientists, but we, we think that they are about 4 to 10 kilometres in size. So they, they separate from the large plume and then they move back and forth still with the tide. Do you have any idea how long these features are lasting for? They're pretty short-lived, so I would say on, on the scale of hours to days. This area is largely influenced by one coastal current known as the Derville Current, and often the lifetime of these features are dependent on, on, the, on the amplitude of the current in the region. So if the current is strong, it mixes the features pretty fast, and if the current is not present, then these features last longer. So tell me a bit more about the Derville Current. What do we know about it? It's a coastal 
barotropic current. By barotropic, I mean well-mixed. And it, it moves from the west coast into Cook Strait, just north of Farewell Spit. And that's where it interacts with these features because the features is, are coming out of the bays and the current is coming from the west coast north of Farewell Spit into Cook Strait. So we know that the Derby current is highly variable and intensity and its direction also varies, so it reverses every now and then. What's the significance of these freshwater eddies that you're picking up? They connect land to the ocean. And what's, I think, new with this study is that it's taking this connection much further out to sea than we previously knew. And this buoyant layer that floats on top of the water column and doesn't mix right away, it it travels and with it potentially carries sediments and nutrients from land, but we haven't really done those kind of investigation yet. I mentioned about the uh, the coastal current earlier, the Derby current. It's it often brings upwelled water into Greater Cook Strait as well, and coastal upwelling is the rise of cold, nutrient-rich water to the warmer, nutrient-poor surface where the cold, nutrient-rich water is then exposed to light and kickstart primary production. And so, this plume of upwelled water often uh, gets transported into Greater Cook Strait by the Derville Current. And uh, what we found from some of the glider observations is that these low salinity features can occur at the same time as the upwelling, and they have stronger signatures in chlorophyll, which could indicate that these features are more productive than the upwelling, which is a novel finding, I guess, for this region. Do you think this is something that's unique to this place because of something about the geography and the way the water moves there? Or do you think if you went looking for this in other places, you might find something similar? Do you have any sense of that? I have a sense that these signals are all around New Zealand waters. We've certainly got some other glider data that's not quite published, but we see these signals elsewhere around New Zealand. And so it's kind of changing our thinking about where rivers end. You know, they don't just end at these coastal bays. They, they do extend quite a long way offshore. And it's, you know, taking an outward look and fate of what these rivers are doing in our coastal and ocean systems. And so whilst you see signals of low salinity in large systems elsewhere, this is, this is quite a different scale these are small rivers, so the, the amount of discharge in these rivers is quite small, but, but at times when we're out there with the glider, we've sampled some very large events, and so these events happen maybe when a tropical cyclone comes into New Zealand waters, and there's two or three times the amount of river water going into the ocean, and we see much, much lower salinity and for a much longer period of time. And so if we think about events in a changing climate, then it's, again, that outward thinking about where a river ends up, and it's not just local, it's much more offshore and if we're getting larger events in the future what does that mean for our coastal oceans. Thanks Joe. That was coastal oceanographer Joe O'Callaghan from Niwa and the Sustainable Seas National Science Challenge. And we also heard from Koshbu Jakor who is a PhD student from the University of Auckland. And Joe says in light of this week's heavy rain around the country, especially north of Wellington, that she's curious about where all that flood water may have ended up once it made it out to sea. And that's the show. But you can catch up with both of tonight's stories again at our webpage, 
rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld and you'll find photos of the glider there as well. Don't forget you can subscribe to us as a podcast and keep in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter where we are RNZ Science. I'll be back next week, but for now it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Kia pai tōpō.